For the sermon this morning, you can start by turning to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 41 through 44 in Luke 19. Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, as we consider this sobering judgment upon Israel for their hard-hearted unbelief in Christ in the midst of all the miracles, in the midst of all the fulfilled prophecies. Father, I pray that none of us here would have a hard heart in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have in the New Testament. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning powerfully, that we would see both your severity in judgment and your kindness in the grace of God and mercy seen in the cross of Christ. Father, I pray that you would work now in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began to open up the some end time terms and started to, uh, in a sense, understand what uh, perspective that at least I'm going to preach uh, uh, the text coming up in Luke. And in the midst of all that, my prayer last week and my prayer this week also is that we don't miss the practical application that we see in these things. Mainly the danger of unrepentant, stubborn, hard-heartedness. We're all capable as believers even to become hard-hearted. In fact, the way a believer will remain faithful to the end is in his continued softness of heart, repenting of sin and, and going to Christ for forgiveness. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, this Hebrews is, is, is like one sermon that's convincing the believers to continue on in their faith with Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. That's Christians. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I don't know the details of your personal life, but I do know that sin that is protected, that sin that is coddled, is dangerous. The deceitfulness of sin is what the writer of Hebrews warned about. The slow hardening of heart so that we fall away from the living God, which is the most insane thing we could ever do. And so as we consider Israel's hardness of heart, let us take warning. As we consider the judgment on them when God gave them over to a hard heart. He blinded their eyes so that they could no longer see. In fact, halfway through Jesus' ministry, there was a point where rather than revealing truth to Israel, he began to conceal it in the parables. So let's not miss the practical implications and applications of the text as we consider what is God's plan for Israel. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about, we're going to start with the zoomed out general views of the end times. You can split end times views into two. The preterist view, which is a view that says that the book of Revelation, the majority of the book of Revelation, most of the prophecies that you see in the prophets were fulfilled in the first century, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And you might say, so why are we doing this sermon? It's because uh, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD in our text. And so I figured this is as good a place as any to uh, show there's watershed at this point. So that when John wrote the book of Revelation, those who take the preterist view uh, take an early date of the writing of the book of Revelation. Uh, it, it, the majority of scholars don't take that early date, but it takes the early date and says that these prophecies are fulfilled in the first century so that now they would be in the past for, uh, for us. Thus, uh, the word preterist, meaning past, fulfillment. So you can imagine that if that's the way you're going to uh, go to the book of Revelation or the different prophets, there's going to be uh, different conclusions that would be met. And so last week... Uh, we talked about the preterist view and the future view. The future view is that these things will be fulfilled in a yet future time. Um, and the question we ask then is this. It's kind of the practical extension to the question. When Jesus gives this uh, judgment in Luke 19, 
against Israel because they did not know the things that make for peace, repentance, and faith in Christ, and because they did not know the time of their visitation, is that judgment final on Israel? All right? So the rest of the sermon is not going to make sense if, if we don't get that question into mind. Is God setting aside the nation of Israel for good at their destruction of 70 A.D.? That's the question. And the answer to that, in my opinion, is no. And I will try to argue for that uh, from the prophets today. And so if we would look at Luke 13, before we launch into the prophets, and just review a little bit. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And it was. The shepherds in Israel were evil. They the house was forsaken. The temple was forsaken. Hence, in our next text, Jesus is going to clear the temple. But then he says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're not seeing the Messiah when the Messiah's right in front of Israel, and their house is forsaken, but there will be a day when they will see him. And it's when they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he rode into Jerusalem, what did the Jews say? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus wept because he knew that they weren't receiving him as the sacrifice for their sins, but merely a political leader. This was not the time that they trusted and saw Christ by faith, other than the small remnant of elect in those days like the Apostle Paul. And then let's look at Luke 21 again. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those that are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so here, in 70 AD, they were surrounded. They were trampled. 
And that trampling will take place until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, which I think would point to a future plan for the nation of Israel in the end. And then Acts 1, verse 6. This is right before Jesus ascends into heaven. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Really specific question. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Jesus did not say there that he already has restored the kingdom to Israel. He said, you're not going to know the time. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, how did they see him go into heaven? In his new body. In a real body. After the resurrection, they saw him go up, be taken up in a cloud into heaven. So that when we read the text of Jesus coming in a real body on the clouds, we would expect it to be in not a spiritual way, but here there will be the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 3, verse 18, in this sermon that Peter is preaching to the Jews, he says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets... That is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled already. Jesus has already died on the cross. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, he's preaching to hard-hearted Israel. That times of refreshing might come. Now, that's a key phrase that you're going to see in these prophetic texts. This idea of a fountain or being cleansed by water or times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Wait a minute. He just came and he died and he fulfilled that which he did on the cross but Israel, that times of, of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that Christ, he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things uh, about which God spoke through the mouth of the prophets long ago. And so once again, you see until this time, and you see this word restoring, Times are refreshing. Think of blue as water. And the red is this restoring language that's all throughout the Old Testament prophets. And so my contention is this, is that as uh, Luke is writing this, or, or write it, 
declaring to us Peter's sermon, Peter has these texts in his mind, and he's using the same language of the prophets. And we're going to go to those prophets, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does God predict for Israel? And then last week, we looked at Romans 11. Uh, I'll just hit the high points here. We see judgment on Israel. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Bend their backs forever. It sounds like total judgment. But then he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So God has a plan to use Gentile people to make Israel jealous so that Israel will come to trust the Messiah, which actually points us back to Romans 10. What's the next text we got up there? Yeah. So Romans 11, actually, the, the thought begins before this. In Romans 10, 19, he says this, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Did they not believe? And then he quotes Deuteronomy 32. He's, he, he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With the foolish nation, I will make you angry. So let's go to the next text. Deuteronomy 32, because this is where he points us to. So our question is, when Paul in Romans is writing this, and he's saying, did they not understand? He quotes Deuteronomy 32, and if we were to read it in its context, we don't have time to read the whole thing. I'm going to hit the high points. Here's what you'll see. In verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God that gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Israel rejected their Messiah. He said, I will hide my face from them. That's the judgment of hardening and blinding. I will see their, what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. And that generation was wiped away. They have made me jealous with what is no God, and they have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I'll make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with the foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. God was angry, therefore he put the blinding judgment on Israel for rejecting their Messiah. And if we're to continue to read, we would think, well, maybe he is done with them. But here's the theme we'll see in the prophets. The Messiah came, they rejected him, God judges Israel, but there will be a day when he will save them. Verse 26 says, I would have said, I'll cut them to pieces and I'll wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord that did this. Lest the nations say, oh, look, we beat Israel and they're gone. No, God was using them 
for judgment on Israel. And then in verse 36, as you continue on in this passage, he says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And Israel was wiped off the map for almost 2,000 years. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And so we start to see the theme, God's judgment on on Israel because of their unbelief, then judgment on Israel's enemies, then Israel being restored to their land. And where we left off last week was in Zechariah. And we already talked about how Zechariah predicted that Jesus would ride humbly on a donkey in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Specific prophecy, not fulfilled spiritually, but specifically. And then in Zechariah 10, there's this argument that he will, uh, he says, I'll strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I'll have compassion on them. So there's this language where he's going to bring them back. And then in chapter 11, he speaks of these uh, worthless shepherds that are going to be judged by Christ. And, and he even predicts Judas's. We looked at this last week that Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so we're going to pick up in Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 6. And really, he begins in verse, verse 1, but for the sake of time. Like in verse 2, he says, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a couple staggering to the surrounding people. I'm about to judge Israel's enemies. And then in verse 6, he says this, On that day, there's a day in the future, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God and the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then verse 10, and here's where it starts to get important. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. This pouring out, this cleansing, this refreshing language. He's going to pour out 
on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. And he's been talking about on that day. And whenever we see something like he's going to pour out a spirit of grace, I know two things are coming. Because of Ephesians 2.8, for grace you've been saved through faith, it's not your own doing. So here's the thing, grace always comes through faith. If a spirit of grace is coming upon Israel, it's going to come upon Israel through faith, through their belief. So what we would expect to come next is what does come next. And he says, he'll pour out upon them a spirit of grace and please for mercy. Wow. Israel's heart's going to be softened so that when they look on me, remember when Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when they look on him with faith, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. There's repentance as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Like for God's only son, they will look on him and they will see him and they will mourn and it'll be a day of the spirit of grace being poured out on Israel. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo when they mourned the death of King Josiah. This is beautiful repentance, beautiful mourning over their sin and their unbelief. And then it says in verse 12, the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is a huge outpouring of repentance. The family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened. This is what Peter was preaching about. Times of refreshing, times of restoring. On that day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I'll remove the land, from the land, the prophets and the spirit of uncleanliness. And so if we were to read Zechariah more literally, like Jesus will come humbly riding on a donkey and that Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, then if we would read that Jerusalem will have its place really in this earth and there will be real repentance given to Israel, then we would expect that the hardening 
that is present on the majority of Israel will one day be lifted. What's the next text I got up there? Ezekiel. So Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols, I'll cleanse you. I'll take you from the nations. I'll gather you together. I've always read that just as a Gentile saying this is me being born again and that's true. It's pointing to the new birth. Jesus pointed us to that in John 3 but then I thought about it. Who is Jesus talking to in John 3? The teacher of Israel. And he's pointing them to Ezekiel 36 that he needs a new heart. And then if we were to read on, we don't have time to do this, but I just kind of want to point you towards it. The rest of Zechariah is incredible. Let's just look at 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This, this is predicting uh, who stands next to the Lord, Christ. The sword was uh, against Christ as Christ bore our wrath on the cross. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. Judgment on Israel. In the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish. One third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third into the fire. Refine them as one refined silver. And test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name. And I'll answer them. And I'll say they are my people. And they shall say the Lord is my God. And then you get to chapter 14. And we see, I think, is a clear prediction of Christ's bodily return to this earth. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. Is he going to fight spiritually or literally? On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This sounds like Revelation 19 to me. When those clothed in white robes come behind Jesus, who will come on the clouds, he clum, comes to make war. He's on a war horse to judge the nations. And in our text, it says his literal feet are going to hit a literal place, the Mount of Olives, which is consistent with Acts 1 that says he's going to come in the same way he left. And listen to this. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. 
On that day, the living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall come into the summer, or it shall come in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. And so, my view is, I think, Jesus, the kingdom comes on earth when his feet hit the ground, and when his feet hit the ground, even the landscape as we know it, the deserts will be turned uh, to like a fruitful plain. The mountains will be made a plain. Jerusalem will be left high. And I realize some interpret this text as, no, this is Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, The rivers will flow to the east and west as we carry the gospel to the nations. The problem is, is so far, Zechariah's prophecies have been fulfilled to the T, literally, in riding on a donkey, in selling him for 30 pieces of silver, and the sword will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So I wouldn't expect just a spiritual interpretation of the text. And the other important prophets to go to would be uh, Jeremiah and Joel. And we're just going to go real fast. I realize you're... Uh, this, this is like the flyover version. We just can't do this all day long, even though I would think it's fun. You might not. But this is to introduce for you to go and read the prophets with renewed excitement as, and as you see these things. So here's what he says in Jeremiah 30, verse 3. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. That's Acts 3, the restoring language. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, I will bring them back into the land, which means they were out of it, and I gave them that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. I ask now, see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in child labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And so the time of distress, I think this is the time of the tribulation. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's when I think the mass conversion of Israel will take place, this time where there's never been a day like it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck and burst your bonds. And the foreigner shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity, Jacob shall return and have quiet ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end to, of all the nations whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. And so here we see it. 
there's a scattering, there's a judgment for their unbelief, but there's not going to be a full end to Israel. And then uh, he says, here's where we see the discipline. I'll discipline you in a just measure. How, how, How important... How serious does God take it when you did not deny the Messiah? Listen to this language. I'll discipline you in a just measure, and I'll by no means leave you unpunished, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of the enemy the punishment of a merciless foe because your guilt is great. Incredible judgment on Israel because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. So once again, it seems like, man, he's done with them. Therefore, All who devour you shall be devoured. Wait a minute. Now Israel's enemies are being judged. All your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore, there's that language, health to you. With your wounds I will heal you, declares the Lord, because they called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. So if you're wondering, where is the prophetic text that would speak of a literal temple in a literal Jerusalem? most would point to a text like this. For the sake of time, we'll go to Jeremiah 31. You hanging in there? Says a lot of Old Testament prophets here. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars by night. Now follow his argument. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease to being a nation before me forever. So if the sun and creation quits holding an orbit, something that's sure, then I'll forget them as a nation. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured, which they can't, and if the foundations of the earth can be explored, which they can't, then I'll be cast off of all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. 
Behold, the, the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner of the gate. And the Mezarine line shall go out further straight to the hill of Gerub and shall then turn to Gora. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord and it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And then Joel. Beginning in verse 2, verse 30. I will show the wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jesus talks about, is going to talk about this in Luke 21. And he talks about this in Matthew 24, these cataclysmic events that will happen right before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so the question is, is in 70 AD, were these vast uh, signs in the sky, uh, like in Luke 19, when he says, you'll see it like lightning in the sky from the east is from the west. Was the destruction of Jerusalem that vast? This is describing uh, this type of event. And then it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, you, you, you connect Joel 2 to Acts 3. It's the same language of restoration. In Acts 3, he's saying Christ went to the right hand of God, but he's going to be sent to you a people. That's the exact same thing we're seeing here. And then in verse 16, just for the sake of time in, in Joel 3, here's what we read. The Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion on my holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet honey and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water of the valley of Shittim. So here's a fountain that will come forth, just like we saw in Zechariah, that'll come forth on that day. And then we see Israel's enemies will be Judged, And this says, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. And so we just see the theme of judgment on Israel because of their unbelief, the destruction of Israel's enemies. Sometimes Christ's death is specifically described there. And then a future time when Christ comes to this earth and 
will reign as king in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom is, is what I believe. So that was a little bit of, if you were to ask me, so why are you preaching from the perspective that you're preaching from, a futurist view? That would be a small summation of why, both in the New Testament text and then as I am directed back to the Old Testament, I would not expect the destruction of Jerusalem or that all these prophecies are only going to be fulfilled spiritually when the first coming of Christ, they were fulfilled so literally. So once again, what does this do for you <laughs> this week as you leave here? Know the time. See the judgment on Israel because they're stubborn unbelief. That same judgment, how, how many chances will God give you where you're still leaning in to the mercy and grace of God? Right now, anyone here can be saved if they will repent of their sins, humble themselves, and say, my only hope is that fountain that was open to the Gentiles and to some Jews, not very many so far, when Christ was on the cross. Your only chance for your sins to be forgiven is for Christ to pay them on the cross in your place. And the time of salvation is now. It makes no sense to guard sin in your life. Repent of it. Confess it. Turn to Christ. And if you're walking with him, and I trust that most of you are, you are the ambassadors. You are the ones as we go to the nations to share the gospel. Let me just finish with 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Everyone, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Now get this. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave you the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is your job, and that is my job as Christians. This is the time of salvation for sinners, and we are the ones. God makes his appeal through Christians, through you and I. And if we continue to read, he, he summarizes the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew so, no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then if you read into chapter 6, working together with him, that's what we do. We work together with him then. 
we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then he says, that's why I do the ministry the way I do and experience all this suffering. So come to him now and go be his witnesses now. We don't sit on our hands and wait for God to do what he's going to do when he's already predestined and planned for his work to flow in this time through the preaching of the gospel. And he'll set up the kingdom when he comes on earth. The kingdom spreads spiritually now through the gospel preaching. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. Uh, it's impossible that this book is not a divine book. Consistency throughout Yes, it's hard for our feeble minds. Yes, it's hard for my mind. But Lord, we can't help but be in awe of all your perfect prophecies being fulfilled. And we, ain't, we, we put our hope in all the future ones, Lord. Of course, you will keep your word. Thank you, Lord, for Christ and for this word. In Christ's name, amen.